We're in a time where investors are nervous about everything from inflation to Federal Reserve policy. How does cannabis real estate fit into this equation? You shouldn't be coming to us for the high yield. You should be coming to us for the diversification within your real estate asset class of investments. What's so important about this is that all 27,000 businesses across the country that we've mapped, every one of them gets this benefit immediately for the entire tax year. Hey there, and welcome to another episode. My name is Pascal Wagner, the host of the Grow Your Show podcast. So if you're new here, we help accredited investors grow and diversify their monthly cash flow through low risk private placements. To be clear, uh, we're not financial advisors providing you advice uh, on your specific situation, but our email list, our social content, and this podcast are all designed to help you learn how to find and vet passive income opportunities. Uh, so that someday when you're looking to grow your cash flow, that you'll consider working with us. And uh, with that, I'd like to uh, introduce Rob Seacrest, who is our guest for today. So uh, Rob Seacrest is the president uh, of the Polaris Equity Group, uh, and he's a co-manager of the Polaris Fund, which is a cannabis use commercial real estate mortgage REIT. Uh, they have over uh, 20 years of experience. They've raised over $750 million. And uh, I'm a personal investor in their fund, and so I wanted to bring them on to the show because I think you know there's uh, there's so many unique things that you can invest into, and I wanted to share uh, some of the things that I'm looking at. So uh, with that, let's dive in. All right, everyone, I'd love to introduce our guest here today, Rob Seacrest. Kind of just talk through, uh, you know, how with recent scams and the shaky economy, and you know, uh, making headlines. Uh, I feel like this niche is really misunderstood. And so I uh, want, wanted to bring Rob here on the show to, to kind of talk, talk about this fund and, and kind of talk about all the maybe objections or things that you uh, might be concerned with if you were going to invest in this kind of fund. So, so welcome, Rob. I'm excited to have you here on the show, man. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here and uh, look forward to uh, batting down some of these uh, potential objections. Yeah, look, so I think uh, when uh, we're in a time where investors are nervous about everything from inflation to Federal Reserve policy and, you know, commercial real estate, you know, prices are readjusting. How does cannabis real estate fit into this equation? Sure. So happy to talk about that. And thanks for having me on the show. So the, the way that that we like to think about it is even though we're a private mortgage REIT making monthly distributions, um, double-digit returns, we try to tell investors, look, you, you shouldn't be coming to us for the high yield. You should be coming to us for the diversification within your real estate asset class of investments. And so your real estate asset class investments, you have kind of two categories. You have your equity investments, where you're the first dollar loss leader, but you also have some uh, appreciation potential there. Um, and some de and some depreciation that flows through, and some some ROIs that can be from fifteen to twenty five percent, but that's not guaranteed. And then you have your debt side of it, which now you have the uh, borrower's equity protecting you, and you have the personal and corporate guarantees that that if there was a deficiency, that could be gone after. 
um, and you've got a, a situation where you know this particular asset class is going to do better in a real estate or economic downturn. And why that's important is that you should be kind of looking at your whole portfolio. Most people have some significant exposure to real estate, whether it's through equities on the U.S. stock market or just direct or however they might be investing. And so you should be looking at whatever my my allocation is to total real estate and whatever my allocation is on the, the equity side. Then I've got my my allocation to the debt side. On the debt side, and even in the equity side, you should be thinking about, all right, how much exposure do I want in class A? How much exposure do I want in multifamily? How much do I want in ex exposure for fix and flip funds? And then you're like, okay, well, wait a second. Cannabis, cannabis is a totally different asset class. And that's most likely that $25 to $75 that's spent each, uh, by each person in the dispensary is going to be a lot less impacted than um, and, you know, if the economy starts to waffle, which I think we all expect that that's coming um, uh, sooner than later. Um, or if there's a down cycle on the real estate values, our, our borrowers are not selling their real estate to get out of these transactions. They're, they're just simply making these uh, you know, properties more efficient in the cash flows and generating cash. And by the way, they generate 10 to 15 times more revenue per square foot than a traditional um, non-cannabis asset. So can you help us dive in and understand with an example, maybe like what does it look like to that your fund does? Like you're giving, sure. yeah, walk us through that. Sure. So, um, you know, we originate senior secured loans um, on commercial real estate, just like any commercial debt fund. What's different about us is that we only originate transactions for specialties properties that are with cannabis legal cannabis use tenants as the tenants for our borrowers. And so we we could have had multiple asset classes within our fund, but people didn't come to us for additional exposure to real estate. They came to us specifically to get exposure to this this one asset class. They don't they're going to blend us in with what they have for their portfolio, not trying to get us to make their portfolio for them. And so a transaction would be something like this. It might be a $5 million purchase price of a commercial building. And that, that building might have $5 million of tenant improvements to build it out for cannabis use. So $10 million in cost basis. We would lend up to 60% cost basis. So we would put out $6 million on that transaction. But day one funding, we're only going to put out $1 million because the borrower came into escrow with four. So we're basically, and we charge on the full $6 million. Then from there going forward, each time a borrower is, is making a draw request, they have to put the money out themselves first. Then we check the receipts, check the invoices, proof of canceled payments, lien releases, do an inspection. And once we've verified everything, we reimburse them after the fact. So, you know, we are in the most secure position that you could possibly be in that transaction as we're building it out. We're never putting out more money than what the value of that property is. It traded for $5 million and we only have $1 million out day one. So that's kind of the structure of our bridge lending program. We also have a fully stabilized lending program that will go up to 75% um, uh, of the cost basis. But these are the, this is the type of transactions we do. What's really unique about this fund and this structure is, is that most real estate funds only get the collateral in the real estate, which is what we have, first senior secured lien there. But in addition to that, we also get the cannabis operator, even if it's unrelated, to pledge their company and their license 
as additional security, those licenses can be worth 50,000 to 50 million, depending on where they're from each, plus the value of the company, the enterprise value of the company, accounts receivables, equipment, and all that. We, we blanket UCC1s on all that stuff. And why I tell you that, why I t- talk, talk about that is we don't give any value to it. So our portfolio today is about 420 million. It's secured by 600 and probably 50 million or so of real estate value. But that does not include all the tertiary additional collateral that we have that we didn't give value to, the licenses, the companies, the equipment, and all of that. So if we do have to reposition something, we've got that license to be able to plug in another cannabis operator for the highest and best use. Yeah, I love I love all that. So to, to, to rehash or put, put in kind of in my own words, it's, you know, you're giving a, a loan to to what would normally be an apartment building or an industrial facility, or it's the same kind of maybe note um, of a mortgage that you're giving out, except the only difference is it's for for cannabis, um, for for cannabis operators to be able to grow their own plant. Now walk us through a little bit of uh, the... I think the first thing that comes to mind is like, ooh, sticky, you know, maybe cannabis might be taboo. Maybe it's going to go away or maybe it'll be legalized all across the United States. Um, and so, like, if I'm investing in this fund, isn't that like a um, like th- that's not really a long term investment or there might be a lot of risk there? How would you kind of circle back yeah, at that? So you actually threw like four or five complicated questions in there thinking. Of all like right, 51. let's break them down. So I'll try to unpack as many as I can that I can I can remember. Um, uh, so let me just first by start by just explaining to people that cannabis is only federally illegal because there is a prohibition on cannabis, similar to alcohol uh, back in the 30s. And so when that prohibition is eventually ended, which I think will be whether it's this administration or next, um, at some point state policy will be deconflicted from federal policy and that prohibition will be ended. When that happens, it doesn't make cannabis federally legal. It just makes it so it's federally not illegal. There's a big distinction there. What what I'm really saying is is that it's going to follow the state's rights. And so each of these states is going to have their own license, uh, their own um, uh, compliance regime and tax regime and testing and all of that. So each of the states are their own universes. Um, Now, that's for the state-issued licenses. Most People in the country, probably less, you know, 99.9998 don't know that there is a federal DEA cannabis license today. And those licenses are um, able to do regular banking. They're able to go on the go public on the major exchanges. They can custody shares um, and, and, and investments at major uh, institutions. They can have institutional investors. And those licenses can cross state lines and go international today. Now, those, re- those licenses, those DEA licenses, were purely created to, for research. There's seven of them that are for cultivation, which we were the first lender in the country to ever lend on one of them. Um, and that is in our portfolio. And by the way, we have equity in that company. I think almost 30% equity options from, in that company. And the only other company that has ever uh, gone public with that DEA license, without even having a facility, had a market cap at one time of half a billion dollars. Now, uh, unfortunately, the uh, operators or the sponsors of that fund um, were uh, deemed bad actors later on, but it does show you the um, 
the velocity of capital if you could get on a major exchange um, uh, with the, with this this asset class. And that's another thing for people to understand is that every single cannabis company in the country that's an operator cannot trade on any major exchanges, which means there's no institutional capital. And I know that people think that retail capital is significant, but relative to institutional capital, it's infinitesimal. And so you're never going to see this industry go to where you think it can go, where we think it can go until that institutional capital comes in. And just so you have an idea, the size of the market from revenue is $27 billion a year currently, and it's projected to be $45 billion within the next several years. $27 billion is larger than the NFL and MLB combined, just, just for a frame of reference. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so uh, I guess the way I think about this investment, just like you laid out, is it's a way to diversify my portfolio. You know, most investors that I know, they, they uh, are either all in the stock market or they are all into multifamily or, you know, and they might be only in one of these two niches. And, and that's kind of what drew me here. Uh, what do you think are the particular risks that you see associated with this? Like what, yeah. you know, the, the flags that come up, what are they? So I'll tell you what the investors perceived risks are, and then I'll tell you what our perceived risks are. Oh, I so, like that. So, That's good. So, so the investors perceived risks are that, you know, this is uh you're never going to be able to compete against banks. It's a very short window. Um, and, um, you know, this is just a short term op opportunity. Um, and what I would say to those people is that, one, there's 804 banks doing depositor relations for cannabis today, which is more than 15% of all 4,500 banks in the country. And of those 804 banks, up to 400 of them have done lending or are actively lending today. We're tracking over four dozen and we've been paid off by banks. Um, these are both federally chartered, state chartered um, credit unions and community banks. So the banks we're already, if, if that thesis was true, it would, we would already not be able to be successful. So um, that, number one, these are just facts. Um, but even when cannabis is deconflicted from state policies, from federal policies, and, the, and the, the, the market opens up wider, there are all kinds of private mortgage REITs like Arbor Commercials that compete against the largest um, lenders in the country, which is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And, you know, if you're basically going against the government and you can be competitive, there's there's a path, a way through. And and so all mortgage REITs, the way that they compete, uh, Starwood and, and all the other ones out there is a combination of debt and equity. And so today we have about 2.25 debt to equity uh, leverage ratio. But over time, most mortgage REITs have three to four X dollars per per dollar of equity. And that's how they compete against banks directly out there and generate still the returns. Now, we think that that is way too far out on today's uh, risk profile for this particular asset. But at some point, we probably will get to a 0.5 or, or even up to one to one ratio at some time in the future. And that's how we can balance um, to compete against banks and other lenders out there. And just to go a little bit deeper on that. We prepared for this a long time ago, and there's pro three primary ways you do that. One is the line of credit, which is the easiest, and most simple. But in the cannabis sector, it was impossible to get. We were the first one to ever get one. Um, and then the second thing is, is we got investment grade rated. We brought in institutional investors, including non-cannabis friendly banks to participate in our bond offering. And we got the highest uh, credit rating ever issued, bar none, including IIPR, which is the behemoth in the industry. Uh, an equity cannabis REIT that trades at uh, two to three billion market cap. 
we supplanted them in our rating uh, higher than that what they got. Um, and then the other, the third one is securitization. So all three of these tools are different vehicles that we use to be able to um, uh, deploy capital and reduce our cost of capital and compete against banks and or compete against our competitors. So today, if we wanted to, we could tighten in our rates and run away with the market, but we really don't need to because none of our competitors are able to issue any capital right now. Wow. Okay. So uh, there was a point that stuck out to me there. So you're taking, so for every hundred million, uh, let's call it, you are taking on 25 million in additional debt. Uh, and, and whereas like a normal mortgage REIT, one, uh, uh, a mortgage REIT that's lending to the apartment building next door, they are taking four times, uh, like they're getting, they're getting 300 million in debt on top of their 100 million. Yeah, so they might have 200 million in equity and have a billion assets under management. Wow, yeah, right. I mean, that's, you know, 80% down. Um, it's or, a four to one ratio, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow, that's wild. Uh, I guess if that's commonplace, why, why have you decided not to do that? So this is an emerging market. And in emerging markets, there's, there are people still trying to figure out their business model and how that, that cannabis operator might work. And so there's a generally going to be a slightly higher default rate here than traditionally, but a, a lower loss rate. And we always try to uh, emphasize that a default, you know, nobody wants to have a report a default, but what's more important is what's the loss rate. And the loss rate is what's more important. Yeah, I could say I have zero default rate, but when I did lose, when I did take one back a long time ago, I lost 50% of it. That, that, that kind of, a, you know, it's, it's I, I always say you got to ask both those questions. Um, but this is, this is just a, a unique sector to, to, a complicated sector to be in. And we want to see, each of these 50 states, it's only 40 today out of the 50 that are legal, but each one is going through a maturation to a fully stabilized market. And why I'm using these specific words, I'm trying to, to, to delineate in your mind that none of the markets in the entire country has fully stabilized, meaning that the market has reached the capacity and the pricing is stabilized out. And so what keeps us up at night and what, what, what we worry about is, is where is the capacity for the market within each state and what's the capacity for the country. And so that kept us up so much at night, not knowing when we would reach there, which we knew it would be years away, but still it's kept us up today worrying about it into the future. We created the first, um, we've created the Polaris data project and that project uh, is a separate company that went out and mapped every single cannabis operator in the country, what type of license, cultivation, testing, distribution, extraction, um, who owns it, where is it situated in the real estate, how much, uh, how much can, they, can they grow, it hasn't been built yet, and we're monitoring the capacity for the entire state on a per capita basis. And so when we start to delineate this data, we, we land on commercial buildings and, and, and greenhouses as well. And for greenhouses, we have to factor in the latitude of the state and how much sunlight there is during the growing season to factor that into the yield production. We have to factor in energy costs. We have to factor in all these things for Las Vegas. We have to factor in tourist season. And so all this information, we can now almost front run the market to know where the best states are, what, what you know, 
Colorado has 682 mini dispensaries per the capita right now. So we wouldn't be uh, we, we wouldn't be lending into a dispensary in that state. Um, but every other state is under capacity for for uh, uh, dispensaries, including California and New York. But there's there's more to it. So these are the things that keep us up. And it's usually completely different than what pe- what investors think about. We're like, yeah, that that that's small ball too compared to what we're what the yeah. things that we're thinking about. Right, right. Um, so uh, help me understand that a little bit better. So you're sitting there and you're analyzing like how much is being sold and uh, and what you, what's going to be yielded, price so that way you can you can factor capita. in the risk of lending to to an operator. Is that it? That's that's right. So even more granular than that, we now have such a broad base of data. We know the mean average for what it costs to to produce cannabis in different latitudes for different types of licenses, whether it's greenhouse or indoor. We know what it costs to to build. We know what it costs for labor. We know what the what the mean should be for this type of facility. And where are their, the borrowers coming into us for a, a loan, where their projections are, we can run that against our models and say, look, you're way off. We'd like you to explain why you think that you're off, why, why you can outperform there, or you're way off, you're, under, you're underestimating based on the data that we have. So we square that up. And if they can't explain it, then we're going to underwrite and, and include the additional things that we know of. So we know how to add 20 to 30 percent in um, uh, uh, in the yield uh, to the facilities now in a consistent way. We also know how to reduce uh, labor by 80 to 90 percent. And so we're going to suggest that you might want to utilize some of these best practices that we've established through doing 74 transactions across the country for more than 540 million. You don't have to do that, but you're going to have a negative competitive advantage compared to the rest of the loan book. Because uh, the entire industry is marching forward on becoming more and more efficient. Wow, that is that is cool. I you know it's it's so fascinating. You know, with every additional conversation, and it's kind of what I stress when you're looking to invest in these types of things. It's like it actually you. I, I'm still learning. You know, I, I went to dinner with Rob when we were together here in Denver. He flew out uh, and did an investor dinner with us and. You know, you learn so much from every single engagement, but even now you, you learn these little tidbits and it's uh, uh, it's just part of the due diligence process. So, um, Rob, you mentioned this idea that you're worried about capacity. When you talk about uh, capacity, is that in this way of, oh, do we think that um, there's enough margin for operators. And so we think there's going to be an influx of people that might need loans from us. Is that is like, are you trying to We're thinking about it in a couple of ways. So firstly, we're thinking about it broadly. What is the universe of population in that state? What is the percentage of of the population that uses cannabis? Um, And there's, there's actually studies on, on all of these data. So you can come up with a, a, a broad, idea of what the universe, whether it's once a time, one time, one once a year use, monthly use, uh, weekly use, daily use, and, and all that stuff. And then you you factor all that those things in. And so what we're really looking for is that we want to make sure that we haven't just built a facility and paid to, to build out a facility and there's already too much cultivation capacity to serve that state. So that's that's capacity at, 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 the, at the per capita. So, so you're range. looking at, okay, there are 
X number of other competitors to the person who's asking for a loan from you. And then you're and you're basically sitting there and saying, hey, uh, actually, this might be too risky for us because there's so many growth facilities here. It can't yeah. even meet the demand. Yeah. So like, for example, we wouldn't build a, uh, a facility if we don't lend in Canada, but Canada, this happened. They, they built way too much capacity for the entire country. They, they, they could build, they could produce 5X of what the, the, the country's uh, population is. And they did that speculating that they would be able to ship out, out of the country and be competitive in foreign markets and, you know, that some other things would develop and that, that didn't happen. So, you know, we, and we, by the way, we did map every license up there too, just to have some a more time series data. And we, our data is now for two and a half years. So we're tracking all of these trends and watching it. And we're watching how each one of these states, whether it starts off as rec, uh, as medical and then switches to recreational, or if it went concurrently, recreational and medical at the same time. And if it was a limited license state or an unlimited license state. So all of these have a different path or trajectory, but it also matters what the geography and where it is and the size of that state um, and what the access is. Now, California is a massive state and it's, it's cannabis is legal here, but 70% of the counties, it's not. And so you have a situation with 40 million plus people in the state, but there's not access to 70% of the, of the, of the state just because there's nothing, there's no, there hasn't been stuff built there to provide uh, legal product to them uh, directly. You've been doing this for 16 years now. How, how, how long have you been doing this? The, the cannabis strategy, we started analyzing in 2014 and we, we started originating in 2016. So a little bit of time there, but you know, we've been lenders for nearly three decades now. And what, so like, what were you doing before and what was like the big aha moment that made you shift? Sure. So we were a value add lender, just which is basically what we are today, but just for specialty use asset class. Um, and we knew that we had the, the skill set to do this, but the aha moment was not as it wasn't as as uh, aha as you think. Um, our local congressman Dana Robacher, who's a friend, passed the most consequential legislation to ever pass in the country that nobody knows about, and that was the Robacher Blumenauer Amendment that defunded the Department of Justice from prosecuting any cannabis-related business in a medically licensed state. And so when that law passed, to us, this meant that this is the largest newly created asset class that we can lend on, that the tenant isn't going to be prosecuted for being federally illegal business, that we would have to you know, deal with that. And so my partner's like, buddy, we're going to do this. And I'm like, Frick, this is going to be so hard to raise the money. And if I if I really knew how hard it was, I probably would have never done it. But I was dumb enough to freaking try. So <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. So uh, going to this idea that, you know, I think the people that are tuning into the show and, you know, frankly, what I'm interested in is, is this idea of generating consistent monthly passive income. Right. So and, and to me, Polaris is one of those funds that has has done that and a lot of firms choose to maybe do quarterly distributions or um you know in a different frequency T tell me about why why you've chosen monthly and like how you've gotten your operations to that point to yeah so it's that. been an evolution and we didn't get it right but we didn't get it wrong um so originally the fund was a hundred million dollar fund 
with quarterly distributions and it wasn't a mortgage REIT. The reason that we did quarterly distributions is that it just is a very complicated process. People don't realize to close out the books on a fund of a commingled assets and, and balance all the expenses and to get that distribution out within 30 days is is enormously challenging. We do it in, in two weeks from when the when the month ends. But um, when we launched the fund, we I was dumb enough to think I could go get family offices and some high net worth individuals, and it would be wouldn't be that dissimilar to how I raised capital previously. And I was pretty good at raising the capital there. Well, as I started going into this, the first year we only had raised one point four nine five million. I mean, like infinitesimal. That's not, that I could raise that in thirty minutes at the most, right. uh, and that was after six months after when we closed the first year. And and my partner and I had put in millions of dollars into the manager to operate it at a at the highest level possible, and there's no, there's just no money there. Now, luckily, we have other sources of income and businesses, and we were still at the time doing non cannabis transactions also out of our firm. Um, and then the next year, though, we were only to, I think, 6.5 million or so. And so that uh, now we've gone 18 months, and this is a complete loss uh, of, if you look at, uh, at, the, at the amount of energy and the return on it wasn't making sense. Now, the next year, um, COVID happened. And that next year, we went from 6.5 million to like 52 million in one year. And that was um, a, a shift because people started realizing they're too heavily weighted into traditional real estate asset classes. And COVID made them really realize, I want to be diversified in something that's less impacted like us. Um, so anyway, we realized that retail investors is the way to go. And so in doing that, um, along the way, we decided to upsize the fund to a quarter of a billion, convert to a private mortgage REIT for the tax advantage for the retail investors reduce the minimums, and go to monthly distributions because we wanted, if we're going to build it for retail investors, we wanted to we wanted to build it so that they got the maximum benefit out of that. So they would get 12 times compounding if they reinvest. By the way, about 40% of our investors reinvest their distributions. So we wanted them to have all the yields and targets that we put out are net uh, IRR. So our target yield is 12 to 15%, which we've hit every, every year. Um, but if you were to add the, if you're reinvesting, you're looking at probably an extra, you know, one and a half percent on top of that, in addition to what if, if you took distributions. I think today, if you took distributions since inception, you've received about 65% of your capital back uh, in distributions. But if you reinvested, you're at like 83% additional uh, capital in your account. So it's pretty significant. And then the other thing is, is that we do have equity in transactions as well, which is super rare if, if you know, the only other people that have it are, are other cannabis funds like ourselves, but we were the ones that came up with the strategy. And we've got options for warrants and eight transactions out of our 32 transactions. And that we don't count that in our, our yields, like some of our competitors are baking that in. We think that that's a bad strategy because those are going to go away when there's more competition out there in the sector. Um, and, you know, we we think that probably the, these eight are the last that we'll get. But the the amount of pent up um, net equity value that's there is is it if any of these hit are major. I'll just give you an example of one is a publicly traded company that our option price is five cents. And it's trading at five cents right now, between five and six cents. Now, this is retail investors, and it's got a lot of volatility, but that's just pretty consistently there. 
just to kind of give you an idea, if it goes from five cents to 50 cents, we 10 X that, that op, that value. So it would go from 3 million to 30 million. If it went from, uh, if it went to $5, we're talking hundred X. And so it goes from 3 million to 300 million. Um, so like, you know, most likely the, the, we, we don't get to monetize all of them, but even one of them, that's just one company. And that company could easily get there. So we own 30, 30% of that particular company. Um, and they've traded as high as 384 before when they weren't even profitable. Yeah. When, when do you expect the, those to like those to shift in the market? Yeah. So um, we actually have some clarity a little bit there. Um, so there's two major things happening in the cannabis sector. One is the HHS has recommended to reschedule cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule HHS. 3. HHS. Health and Human Services. Cool. Um, and why that's so important is that for cannabis businesses, they're not able to write off any expenses um, uh, on their federal tax returns. So now they would get a 40 to 50% net uh, uplift to the bottom line on their federal uh, tax returns and, and profitability for the company. So that's major. That's that major. recommendation has already happened. So that's been done. Now we're just waiting for the Department of Justice to uh, accept it or decline it. And I just can't imagine a world where the only reason that HHS moved forward on it was because the, uh, the executive branch directed them to and the executive branch uh, directs the Department of Justice as well. So I, I can't imagine Garland is going to be uh, opposed to it. So just, you know, like uh, picking up a tidbit here, I mean, would we I would imagine that it, all cannabis companies, at least in the United States, that trade publicly would they would it, like it, it now would be the I mean, it's not financial advice, but like now would be a great time to invest. There's so. Let's just put it this way: the um, that response is supposed to come. My understanding is that response from the Department of Justice has to come within 90 days. We're 40 days into it, so we should get the confirmation sometime this year. Um, that doesn't mean that it happens that day. That just means that they've recommended to do it. Then there's a little bit more process to it. There's going to be an implementation period, a comment period, but most likely there'll also become a, a Department of Justice memo that comes out that was would be similar to what the Cole memo was under the Obama administration. Um, and that will give the framework of how to how to work without utilizing Congress. And so what's so important about this is that all 27,000 businesses across the country that we've mapped, every one of them gets this, this, this benefit immediately for the entire tax year. And they theoretically should be able to carry the non-operating losses forward from the previous years. They might even be able to carry the taxes that they paid possible, we'll have to see where that ultimately get worked out. But it's massive. This is the wow. most massive thing that could possibly happen. Um, it also clears up some other issues for anti-money laundering, because now you're not Schedule 1, you're Schedule 3. So it clears up some, some custodial issues for how shares are held. And so we might, that 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 rescheduling plus the, the Department of Justice memo that we think is is has to come with it to provide additional clarity of of how they're thinking about it. Um, it's basically a, a, we we promise not to prosecute as long as you are agreeing to operate within these things. Very similar to the Cole memo. If you want to look that up, I think it had nine things that you need to comply with. Um, so these are significant. Now, safe banking. I just met with Senator Daines two nights ago. Um, 
He is the co-sponsor of safe banking in the Senate, and the Senate has always been the choke point that they have not been able to get the 60 votes necessary to get through the filibuster. Um, he has previously, we're, we're, we communicate often, um, and he had previously let me know that he had the votes. He had 17 votes, so they had easily superseded it. But now, um, when I just met with him last night, because of all the, um, the hand-wringing in the, uh, the House and uh, McCarthy getting knocked down, um, he said, look, I'm going to put, put the brakes here and slow this down until I see there's a clear path through uh, on the House. And the reason he's saying that is that he's like, I want to make sure this actually goes through, not just goes to die in the House. Like it's done. The House has passed it many, many times and it just goes to die in the Senate. So a lot of people were, were upset with me sharing that. But it, it's it's I think that the, the more important thing to focus is that he's trying to get it done, not just the political uh, pr press release. You know, so there's a lot of stuff happening in this cannabis industry. There's a lot of pro uh, and I imagine in that case, it just makes your uh, like all the uh, investments that the fund makes even safer. Yeah. So that's a great way of looking at it. So our strategy works regardless. So we've underwritten everything the way it is with, you know, we're, we want a 1.25 debt, debt to income service ratio or DC, I should, sorry, DCR, but we typically underwrite to two, to two to three X and we have transactions trade that are at six to seven X. Um, so this sector is just an anomaly and it theoretically should only get better and better, but more and more competition will eventually come in, but they don't have the tools that we have. They don't have that investment grade rating. They don't have the ability and the capacity to do bonds yet, and they certainly haven't figured out how to do securitization. So we've got the framework, we've got the data project, we've got the landscape, we figured it out. Everybody knows who we are. So it would be very difficult to catch up to us and do the size and scale of transactions we do. Yeah, and I mean, you know, not to sound too much like a sales pitch here. I'm an investor, so I'm I'm bought in, and I, I want other people <laughs> to get to know this, right? Like these yeah. these like uh, I want people to trust what's coming out here. But uh, and also the idea is okay if if someone you know if if things changed in the market, you have the ability for someone to to exit out of the fund. It's not like you're holding the money for 10 years. And there's there's like a little bit of gating that you have. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, so I'm um, happy to talk about that. So our we're a, a fund that has notes in it. We've got 32 transactions for 420 million and we've got investors coming in and out at all, all times. And we have two fund um, uh, limits. We have a fund member level limit and a fund level limit. So. When an investor wants to redeem after the six-month lockup, they get the greater of 50000 per month uh, or one-twelfth of their account if it's a large account, more than $600,000. And that's, uh, that's how it's structured so that the fund never has to sell something to be able to provide liquidity. You wouldn't want that. And so the goal here is to provide robust um, liquidity to investors without hampering the fund in any way, shape, or fun, form. Now, on the fund, uh, level limit, we have a limit of no more than 2% of net assets under management to be released under any one month, 5% under uh, in any one year, or 20% in any, any uh, sorry, 2% for a month, 5% for a quarter, and 20% and for a year. And so occasionally we have investors coming in and out at all times. There's there's always people adding and in, 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 in exiting. It, we, we're open-ended. So, you know, people, that's just part of the process. Um, there's been multiple times in the fund's uh, uh, career 
where there might be a the, the advantage of being with a private fund is there's no volatility in the stock market. The disadvantage for the fund manager is there's no volatility in the stock stock price uh, share price. And so when there is a massive shake um, in the liquidity of the stock market or volatility like last year. Um, we get a big wave of people that need liquidity, um, and, it, and it comes in in a big lump. I mean, uh, I think in one one last year, at one time we had forty people come in on one day, uh, needing liquidity, and that's because they don't want to have to sell their stocks at a discount. And so we want to provide that liquidity to them. But even with that many, um, uh, uh, with that many at once, and with the fund member limit uh, level limits, we didn't hit capacity. Now, there's been um, other events in time where, where we came close. Earlier this year, we did just barely have to put the, 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 the limit up on the fund member or on the fund level limit up. But it's, I think it's important to understand what that means. A lot of people use the word gating, and that's not the right level. Gating means that you are not able to honor your requests and you're having to gate and block the money coming out. We are actually not gating, we're limiting. And what we're doing is we're providing liquidity to every single investor that's requesting um, capital. Every single one of them is getting their pro rata share of what's available for that particular month until we work through that, that period. So the, 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 the time that that month that that went into effect, uh, we had about $1.5 million more requested than what's available. We could easily pay it. We had, we're sitting on tens and tens of millions of cash, but that's not how you look at it. As a fund manager, you have to operate by the offering documents and stay consistent with how you think about things because you're trying to balance providing reasonable liquidity of what you agreed to doing, not gating, but limiting if this ever happens, and, and making sure that the fund remains robust and has ample cash flow to do everything it wants to do. I love it. I love it. Um... One thing, uh, kind of one of the, so thank you for answering that question. You know, I think one of the scary things that I think when you're investing in these different types of assets is just how liquid is it? Like, how, how can I get my money out? And so um, I'm, I'm glad we went into that. Yeah. I want to jump over to uh, maybe like one of my, my last questions is the, you know, let's talk about Federal Reserve policy. So the Federal Reserve has been, you know, raising interest rates uh, for the last year, and, and it's had a huge shakeup in the market. And now it's kind of leveling off a little bit. Um, how, how do these interest rates affect the cannabis market specifically for what you're doing? Yeah. So there's two sides to it, how to think about it. So from our borrower's perspective, we're not selling off to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So there's no, we're not tied to that, that in any way. So we, everything is held on our balance sheet. So it doesn't impact us or our borrowers unless we want it to. Now, the only place that it uh, impacts us is that we do have a line of credit. That line of credit has a floating rate, but it's prime plus one. I mean, it, it's not a big deal. Um, and so the part that it impacts the fund the most is that when we're putting up double digit returns, um, you know, annualized net uh, compared to T-bills at 0.75 is one disparity. Okay, uh, you know, plus uh, ten, more than ten, you know, a thousand percent or a thousand points, as opposed to T bills being at five, you know, uh, and we're still at the same. That disparity has changed, and so that's the most difficult thing to think about. Um, and I try to uh, tell people, look, 
yes, the 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 T bill is a is a is the best investment you can do, but there's one other part that people forget about. You have to hold to maturity, or you don't get that yield. So I'm just want to make sure that you know you could have been back at the three percent rate and thinking I am freaking hit a home run. It hasn't been here in my entire life. Um, and now it's at 5% and now you can never, you're going to have to sell that 3% at a discount if you need it back or you got to hold it all the way to maturity. And so right. I think that um, most uh, individuals are not sophisticated to think all the way through their um, first, they're not thinking second order, second order risk through because they're only looking at top line risk. And I think that that's the biggest problem with, with retail investors, when they're thinking about things, they haven't, they are not in the industry deep enough to know second orders of risk, which could far outweigh first order of risk, what is perceived in their mind. I love this topic. I would love to go down a rabbit hole here if you have more insight or, you know, like, you know, it's like I myself, you know, it's, it's, if you're not doing this every day and you're someone who's, you know, got their day job and your W-2, it's understandable how you, you wouldn't be as sophisticated as, as professional institutional investors. I would love to, to highlight a couple of those if, if you can think of any in detail. Well, so I think that that was a really easy one to, 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 to show. People may not understand what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is that when you have a 10-year a, a T-bill at 3%, and like you go into you, you go into treasury.gov and you go buy, you put a hundred grand on a 10 year T bill because you're like, oh, it provides a great rate. I don't need it for a long time. That's what we're talking about. That's right. And so you're going to get back that, you know, uh, that, that T bill plus the yield, uh, or you'll get the yield over if it's being dispersed, depending on which type you, 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 you take. But if you, if the rate uh, on the, if the market rate goes to 10, you actually are going to be taking a, 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 a hit, a loss if you, unless you hold that to maturity. So you have to start running the models. Okay. I can sell this today and I have to sell it at a loss. I have to take a discount on it to get back to the buyer get being at par and I have to incentivize him to be able to buy it. So, so whatever, whatever, even though the, 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 the repayment of it is going to be for sure. The problem is the yield is not guaranteed because you have to you have to put discount in the rate. Then you're like, okay, how far are we from the maturity of this? Can I make more by by selling it today and re re entrenching it back into the T bill today at five percent? Uh, and you have to run those models. And so that duration risk is something that I don't think people probably even ever heard of in in most retail investors don't know what duration risk is. There's more than one type of risk, and that's duration risk. All right. Yeah, I mean, um, similarly, it was uh, I bought a uh, million dollars in bonds uh, earlier this year uh, and held them for six months. And uh, and very much. Yeah, you learn. First off, you learn that you only earn that mat maturity, uh, the interest on maturity. Uh, and then second off, yeah, if you sell it, you you actually like in the meantime, and you didn't earn the interest along the way like you do. And in these types of funds that provide monthly income, you're you're actually you have to sell it at a discount and you you lost money and you didn't even the opportunity cost is huge. So that was a huge lesson that I learned. I mean, I didn't sell them. They all matured and and everything was fine. But, um, you know, definitely something that goes into my thought process now as I'm evaluating all the different vehicles 
to invest with. So that this is the primary reason that all the banks, community and regional banks are struggling. They all overweighted into the most safe and secure investment there was, but now they have a duration risk. And so now they're sitting there going, we don't have the ability to free up deposits, to free up uh, money for people re requesting withdrawals out of our, our bank. And now we have to sell these at a discount. That is the worst possible situation you can yeah, be that's, able to that's bank actually, to do it. That's actually what happened to uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? Yes, uh, Silicon Valley. All, all the banks are facing this specific issue right now. And it's getting exacerbated because the Fed lending rate ran for so long at so low that there's like a generation of kids that have never known what that it can move this. It's never moved this fast, this quick. But there's there's people that don't even understand that that was possible. All right. And so, I, I, yeah. 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 We could get into it for sure. So, <laughs> um, so just to wrap up here, like uh, any any kind of opportunities or, or just things that we should be focused on as we, you know, someone's thinking about the cannabis space and, and evaluating different funds. You know, so. Like I said, like where we started, I, I like to think about it as as uh, diversification of your your risk. And so you're you've got your entire portfolio of what you're uh, investing. And some of it is going to be in equities, some of it's going to be in, in in debt or alternatives. And you just want to be thinking about, okay, I'm going to do uh, this much money in bonds. I'll do you know this much at which you're going to get a zero coupon uh, rate on it as well, where it compounds. So there's all kinds of different ways you could do bonds, by the way. Um, and by the way, never buy them through a brokerage. Always buy them direct. Uh, it, so, um, you know, but the, all of these things that you, you should be thinking about in your uh, design, thinking about your portfolio risk, and you don't need to go to a, a an asset manager or an R a registered investment advisor to think about this. Just so you're like, look, I love multifamily. It's been crushing it for 30 years. Or I love class A. It's never gone bad since that one time in San Francisco in 2002 or, or the dot-com era or whatever it was, you know, and it's like, yeah, until, until it's not. And so all, almost all asset classes are going to have some risk in some period of time. It just might be a longer horizon. And typically, the longer the horizon, the bigger the correction could be. So, I mean, like we're a, seeing with uh, commercial, commercial real estate. Office space, man, I, you know, you just you don't know whether you're actually going to be the smartest guy at the entire table by scooping everything up in the inner city core for class A. And, and, and you can hold that on your balance sheet today with cash. And you're like, look, I'm thinking 30 years down the line and you're probably going to be OK. But, um, you know, maybe maybe the economy and the way that 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 the workforce works going forward and, and AI, no, they don't need people ever again at that level. Right. I've got a really interesting story if you got just a second. So I got yeah, to meet um, uh, NVIDIA last night, one of their top, top executives. And um, there was a couple of takeaways that I got from that. And it just helps me think about how I think about risk in the world and how it's changing. And um, the three things were, one is that they committed to doing Earth uh, 2.0. Um, and what that is, is that NVIDIA, who is the number one uh, manufacturer in the world for uh, artificial intelligence, um, they are spending a half a trillion to model the exact Earth in a virtual environment. And why that's so important is that today, weather, uh, predictive weather can only go out or eight, I think, eight days before it falls off the chart. And it's just not use useful. 
right now they're only two years into the project. And this will be a multi, you know, this will probably be a 10 year project. They can already predict six weeks out in almost perfect accuracy just from that modeling. And so you can just kind of see like hurricanes or global warming, whatever you want to run on that scenario, world war scenarios. Like you can see how, how an, a, a volcanic plume, you could see how this, you've got now every single variable built for a duplicate world. So now you're not guessing in a modeling, you actually have a, a artificial intelligence created one. And I mean, it's a half a trillion dollars that they had to put the processing power to do it. And so that was one that I was just blown away. The other one, I used to write code when I was a kid. And the other one I learned was, is that artificial intelligence, they tell it to write it, but it writes the code itself. Okay, that doesn't, that that's not that mind changing for me. But when they told me that when it writes the code for itself, they don't know, they don't understand the code it wrote. Nobody can un, nobody can unpack what the code or how it's working. I'm like, nobody? They're like, no, we have no idea how artificial intelligence is coming up with hallucinations. We, we, we can only give it guardrails of how we tell it to think about things, but we have no clue. And the, I'm like, holy crap, that's crazy. Yeah. I, it just blew my mind that we don't know how it's writing the code. Even if we looked at those ones and zeros in the lines of code, we wouldn't understand what it, how it was interconnected. I was like, that is crazy. And then the other one was, uh, uh, artificial intelligence will be will never be dumber than it is today. And yeah, fact. I mean, we're already seeing that with ChatGPT. Yeah, and so and they said that the world is it, you that the retail investor, the retail persons in the country don't realize we've already moved in the artificial uh, intelligence age. Uh, CPAs, lawyers, all these jobs are there. Are in ten years going to be like? 5%, if even that, of what they are today. And most of those uh, jobs will probably be cut in half in the next two to three years. And so I was like, okay, so maybe office, maybe that bet that you thought in 30 years on class A office, which you, which a day before I could have been the investor making that investment, I would now be going, ha, ah, okay, I need to think about things a little bit differently. The world has changed. And right. so- all, not all past scenarios of history are going to play out the exact same way or at the same speed as they have previously. That was the nugget, the golden nugget of uh, the interview. I love it. Um, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. This was awesome. I really enjoyed it. It was uh, very much a continuation of what we had at dinner, and I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, me too. Cool, man. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. All right, now some final thoughts for our listeners. There are over 350 of you who are already signed up on our email list, but if you are not already, if you'd like to get access to our database of private investment opportunities that we see every week, uh, and you want to see uh, the opportunities that uh, we put together uh, at Grow Your Cashflow, uh, you can join our investment club at growyourcashflow.io. Now, if you found this particular episode helpful, don't forget to share it with that friend who might benefit uh, and lastly, if you have any questions, suggestions, or just love a particular episode, feel free to reach out to me uh, on Twitter at Pascal Wagner one. Thanks for joining us. And I will see you on the next show.